All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, on the line, I've got antiwar.com contributing editor Daniel Larison. And, um, well, first of all, welcome to the show. Daniel, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, Scott. Thanks for having me back on. Great. Uh, happy to have you here. Listen, before I start asking you all about the Iran nuclear deal, I've got good news for you. I think you must know the headlines about the ceasefire that's been achieved in the war in Yemen. But uh, the news that I have for you is that earlier today I spoke with Nasser Arabi, my reporter friend from Sana'a, and he yeah. says, oh, yeah, man, this is the greatest ceasefire ever compared to all the other ones um, that all sides have invested in. I think I'm almost 90% sure he said, including what he called the Giants Brigade, which is sort of the UAE's euphemism for Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and their militia there. Um, but then Al-Islah, the Muslim Brotherhood, the Southern Socialist Secessionists there in aid in the STC and the Houthis as well have all signed on to the thing. And apparently they really mean it. There's been no airstrikes. They lifted the blockade at the ports and they're working on opening up the Sana'a airport and just, I've known this guy for seven years now, and I never heard him so happy. It seems like real progress breaking out there. So first of all, I just wanted to tell you that. And then second of all, I'm interested in what you think about all that. No, it, it is very promising news. The The truce does seem to be holding, at least for, for now. Uh, the, the trouble with every ceasefire up until now in Yemen uh, is that uh, it, was, it was usually just cover for uh, forces to, to regroup and regather their, their strength and then uh, begin fighting again uh, in just a few weeks. So it, it looks it looks like a promising pause in the fighting and uh, and there has been some movement politically on the the side uh, on the anti Houthi side uh, with the the displacement of Hadi uh, the the so called president of the recognized government uh, and being replaced by I believe an eight person council. Uh, of course, that, that reflects the, the divided nature of the anti-Houthi coalition, uh, but it's uh, it's a promising sign that they are finally realizing that there is no political progress with Hadi as the figurehead, uh, that they are, I think, beginning to wake up to some of the, the political realities uh, in Yemen now. And so, it, yeah, it's a, it's a promising sign. It's, it's one of the first promising signs we've seen in, in quite a while. So I'm, I'm encouraged by it. I, I hope that it takes hold uh, and and leads to a, a longer lasting political settlement. Uh, but we'll we've been disappointed by d developments in Yemen before, so I'll, we'll have to see. That's true. Um, you know, very much so. And that was what he said too. But it's you know, as you were mentioning, you know, the previous ceasefires weren't really ceasefires at all, but just time out to regroup fires. You know. Um, and so this seems to be a, a bit better than that. So we'll just have to take it for what it is, uh, not more, but, uh, definitely a hopeful sign there. And, uh, well, I guess, I, and I think it, go ahead. 
yeah, I think I think it shows that the the Saudi government in particular is finally realizing that they're not going to get a respite from attacks on their territory until they start to deal more seriously uh, on the political and diplomatic side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they they had just taken a number of uh, fairly big hits to their oil facilities. Uh, they 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 had a big hit uh, on their uh, uh, near Jeddah, I believe, uh, a few weeks ago, and and that. I think that may have finally woken them up that they, they can't keep this up. Yeah. Uh, that was what he said too, was what he thought had changed was okay. the Houthis. In fact, you know, they had kind of retreated from Marib, but still they're getting these attacks right on your money inside the border of Saudi Arabia. They're dealing from a position of strength here and the Saudis, come on, they've known all along. They're not going to be able to succeed in putting Hadi back on the throne there. So, the hell are they fighting for much less us right one well, you think they would have realized that a lot sooner and one i i think of course the uae recognized that a long time ago uh they've been pursuing their own agenda separate from hadi for a long time um but i i think even the saudis realize how uh how useless hadi is and what a liability he is uh in, in the eyes of a lot of a lot of yemenis because he didn't even have legitimacy when he was president so it's it's a real stretch to think that he could ever have any after being put back in power by some other government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as, as he is being pushed out or pushed to the side, I, I think that's very encouraging and, and a sign that there is at least a possibility of a compromise uh, in the near future. Yeah. And listen, I'm just throwing this one in here just because I don't know why I should have tried to interview her at the time. Maybe I still will if I can remember. But Morgan Hunter wrote a piece for us at antiwar.com maybe two years ago now, or probably a year ago, Daniel, about the locust plague that had hit, especially in Eastern Africa, and how they all came from Yemen. And they figured out finally what causes grasshoppers to turn into locusts. It's when they're so overpopulated that the male's back legs rub up against each other, and then they start this transformation. And it used to be that at, I don't know exactly what it's called, the University of Sana'a, or the University in Sana'a, whatever it is, they had a major department that was devoted to grasshopper annihilation. And they would go out there and kill them by the millions, cull them. But then the war canceled that, destroyed the university, canceled the program, and those were the grasshoppers that became the locusts that then flew across the Red Sea and decimated eastern africa leading to starvation and hunger and god knows what deprivation for all the horn of africa region there which lasted for i don't know at least two years and i don't even know that it's over yet but that was where that came from and she showed direct causation there from the war our war well and the yeah the the war of course the war has produced uh famine conditions in yemen um and then somalia has been suffering from famine conditions uh, for a number of reasons, but uh, uh, certainly because of their own conflict as well, uh, and and famine is is frequently the handmaiden of war. It's 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 frequently uh, the result of war, and that and famine today is pretty much always uh, man-made uh, because there there is no there's no economic or technical reason why people can't get enough food. It's it's typically because of policy decisions. Uh, made by by governments or or those groups that are in power uh, to deprive people of the means uh, to obtain food, yep. and and we've seen it in Yemen. We're seeing it in Afghanistan. Uh, 
it, it happens, uh, unfortunately, with, with increasing frequency in the modern world. Uh, and it, it's, it's all man-made. Well, and the UN is warning that this year they're expecting another. This will be the third major famine in Somalia under the era of America's war. They're now America's longest war, longer than Afghanistan. Had troops there since December 2001, and they're still there fighting in the name of Al-Shabaab, the problem they created. And so this will be the third major famine there. I want it's yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's sad to think uh, that our, our military interventions in the post-Cold War era uh, really got started uh, with that uh, that intervention under the elder Bush, uh, you know, ostensibly for humanitarian reasons, uh, to, to relieve hunger in Somalia uh, low 30 plus years ago. And uh, obviously we, we're, not, we're not helping very much uh, in that regard anymore. No. Um. And, you know, I need to catch up on that because, you know, we did cover the famine there in 2012 and 13 and in 2017. And so I need to get out at least can't do anything about it, but at least we can, you know, get the experts on to set the record straight that this is what's happening there. And, you know, I mean, we've had, you know, the sun is to blame, right? I mean, the weather is the weather, but the problem is, you know, they have this massive drought, just as you said, massive drought hits the Horn of Africa. Well, that's Eritrea, Ethiopia, Somalia, and Kenya, and I don't know, maybe throw in another somewhere. Um, well, they all had a drought, but Somalia had the famine because that's where the chaos of the war, even where you don't have warlords, you know, monopolizing the food resources, which is exactly what happens, you still just have the chaos of all the violence and you know, people forced out of their homes. That also means off of their farms and the fields don't get planted. Nobody's there to work them. Nobody has any money. The whole thing completely breaks down. And so you have people going hungry across the border, but you have people laying down and dying in Somalia. Right. And, and you're seeing some of the same things as a result of starvation policies uh, inside Ethiopia now in, in the Tigray region as mm -hmm. part of that conflict. And right. so it's, uh, it's a, it's a recurring problem, uh, driven by uh driven by war yep. yeah well here's our segue to our major topic the whole reason barack obama helped the saudis and the uae and al-qaeda launch this genocide back in 2015 was to quote placate the saudis as his ministers explained to the new york times back then at the time and he had to placate them because they were upset because he was negotiating a nuclear deal with Iran. And I think I was even saying to people at the time, geez, I do support this deal, all other things being equal. But then again, you know, I don't know what the Saudis are going to do. Maybe they'll do something horrible. I know I said that to at least somebody interviewing me around that time. And, uh, and then, lo and behold, that was the compromise. Okay, you shut up about us signing this nuclear deal, and we'll help you kill a few hundred thousand people. And that was the deal Barack Obama made with the devil. Crown Prince Bonesaw over there, uh, Deputy Crown Prince then, Mohammed bin Salman. And, um, and so it was all about getting this nuclear deal done. And then Donald Trump comes in and tears it right up and throws it in the trash can anyway. Now the question is, can we get back in the deal? Uh, I know you wouldn't agree with Madeleine Albright. The price was worth it. But the deal itself 
Do you support the deal? What's so important about it? And what kind of progress is the Biden government making after already delaying a year and a half on getting back into this thing? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I certainly support it. Or I supported it originally. I still support re-entering it uh, on the U.S. side uh, to, to, to restore it, to, to make it function the way it was supposed to function originally. Uh, and and the, the chief reasons uh, for keeping it alive and not letting it fall apart, uh, as uh, many in Washington would like to see happen, uh, is uh, it's twofold. Uh, one is that it does provide real non-proliferation benefits. It keeps Iran's nuclear program verifiably peaceful. Uh, it, it blocks off in significant ways the possibility of uh, their nuclear program being put to military uses to create nuclear weapons. And so that's that's good in and of itself, and it's also beneficial for regional stability. Uh, and it also, uh, as an added bonus, it deprives hardliners in this country of a pretext for conflict with Iran uh, which they have been uh, desiring above all else uh, for uh, at least the last 15 years, really the last, probably the last 30. Uh, and, and the nuclear issue has become their, their favorite pretext for that because the, the, the prospect of an unfriendly government with nuclear weapons is always something that alarms people, understandably. Uh, even if it is only intended as a deterrent, many people in this country don't see it that way. And so it makes it easier to sell military action against that country. And so if the nuclear issue is set aside, if it is effectively resolved, even for just a few decades, uh, even if not forever, for just a few decades, it would then remove the possibility or, or certainly reduce the, po the, the probability of war with Iran. And that is all to the good if we want to get our forces out of the Middle East and also if we want to avoid more unnecessary wars uh, overseas. And so, uh, Certainly, there, there were many things that the Obama administration did in their second term, including backing for the Saudis and the UAE, that I strenuously uh, disagreed with, that I, I denounced from the get-go. Uh, and I, I don't really think that that was strictly necessary to get the deal. Uh, what they did in, in securing the non-proliferation agreement itself uh, was worth supporting and I, and I think uh, should be supported again now. Unfortunately, the Biden administration doesn't seem to be as much of a believer in the agreement as, as some of us are. Uh, they, they have dragged their feet uh, for over a year. They've, they've taken forever to nail down the particulars to get this uh, agreement revived. And now uh, my fear is they're going to allow it to fail uh, over this sticking point about the FTO designation for the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, this is the uh, the, the special branch of Iran's military that's dedicated both to regime protection uh, and also to uh, their national security uh, and is uh, one of the, it is the main instrument that they use to coordinate their uh, military policy in the region. And so as a result of that, uh, the Trump administration labeled them as a foreign terrorist organization in 2019. This was part of the broader maximum pressure campaign to try to isolate and pressure Iran into making massive concessions and also simply to, to punish them and keep them isolated. Uh, the, the maximum pressure campaign failed on its own terms, uh, but now it has effectively uh, created a barrier to Biden resuming U.S. involvement in the nuclear deal, because in order to get the Iranians to sign on, uh, the Iranians are saying that they need the IRGC taken off the FTO list because they find it insulting that a branch of their military is being 
grouped with the likes of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And so, uh, really, as a, simply as a matter of face-saving for them, uh, they need the IRGC taken off the list. Uh, the U.S. is reluctant to do that, even though the IRGC would still be sanctioned under different authorities uh, for issues related to terrorism, uh, including being a, a so-called uh, specially designated global terrorist. So in, in practical terms, in terms of the financing of the group, nothing would change if they were taken off the FTO list. What would change uh, is that it would facilitate the resumption of the nuclear deal. And as an another important issue, uh, it would remove this stigma of all the Iranian men who have previously been conscripted into service as uh, as soldiers in the IRGC, who are then essentially blacklisted as terrorists and unable to travel or work in other countries. So this is, uh, it seems to me it's, it's a fairly easy fix that the Biden administration could do, uh, but of course they're terrified of being accused of being weak and appeasing the Iranians, and so they're, they're I think, unwilling to take that step uh, simply because uh, a lot of people in Washington and, and of course, uh, in Israel and Saudi Arabia would throw a fit about it, and they would just rather not deal with that. And so I, I think we're, unfortunately, on the verge of seeing them walk away from a deal that they could get, uh, simply because they they don't want to take that flack. Yeah, give me just a minute here. Listen, I don't know about you guys, but part of running the Libertarian Institute is sending out tons of books and other things to our donors. And who wants to stand in line all day at the post office? But stamps.com? Sorry, but their website is a total disaster. I couldn't spend another minute on it. But I don't have to either, because there's EasyShip.com. EasyShip.com is like Stamps.com, but their website isn't terrible. Go to ScottHorton.org slash EasyShip. Hey, y'all, Scott here. You know, the Libertarian Institute has published a few great books. Mine, Fool's Errand, Enough Already, and The Great Ron Paul. Two by our executive editor, Sheldon Richman coming to Palestine, and what social animals owe to each other. And of course, No Quarter, The Ravings of William Norman Grigg, our late great co-founder and managing editor at the Institute. Coming very soon in the new year will be the excellent Voluntarist Handbook, edited by Keith Knight, a new collection of my interviews about nuclear weapons, one more collection of essays by Will Grigg, and two new books about Syria by the great William Van Wagenen, and Brad Hoff and his co-author, Zachary Wingert. That's libertarianinstitute.org slash books. Well, yeah, these cowards, they're terrified someone will call them weak. So they curl up in a ball and do whatever they're told. And Trump's no right. different. I mean, Trump and Obama and Biden, they're all the same. Um, they're just I guess it's always like this. You're soft on the commies, you're soft on the terrorists, you're soft on the Ayatollah. But it'd be so much easier, I think, I mean, if it was you and me up there, I'd be like, Daniel, get out there and tell them, I ain't afraid of no Ayatollah. And then that way we're still USA number one and all these things. And then, but we can deal with the Ayatollah because frankly, his country has the gross domestic product of Northern Florida or something. And so we can deal with that. We don't have to pretend to be afraid of that. We can negotiate with them. And I guess, forget the spirit of the thing. The point is for me, is that screw the JCPOA because we do have the NPT. And it's true that they could withdraw from the NPT and start making nukes, but it doesn't seem like they really want to do that. And I guess 
my idea about the JCPOA was always that it was superfluous in the sense that it truly was unnecessary, but it was important in the sense that it was kind of necessary anyway, because the lie was essentially that the MPT didn't exist and that the Iranians weren't members of it. And nobody ever heard of a safeguards agreement before. And as far as anyone knows, they're making H-bombs until we get this deal passed. And that narrative was so powerful, it really did take this deal to finally put it to bed. Um, and so it was good for that, even though it shouldn't have been necessary to do that at all. I guess the Ron Paul foreign policy would have been, we're going to lift all the sanctions. We would encourage you to stay within the deal, please. And then that would have been the end of that. And I think that would have been the end of that, right? And the Ayatollah uh, well, doesn't want it, H-bombs anyway, or even A-bombs. It, it's, well, it, it seems like if they had wanted to build them, uh, they, they, they could have built them by now. Uh, they, they probably would have built them by now. And so the, the, the question we should ask is if they have the means to do it or, or if they have the technical know-how to do it, why have they so far refrained from pursuing it or making the political decision to do it? And I think because they, they realize that whatever security benefits they might possibly derive from it, uh, it's not worth being treated like uh, the pariah state that they've been treated like. And so they would rather have normal relations and normal trade with most of the world, uh, of course not with us, but with, with most of the world, uh, rather than, than continue being treated like a pariah. And, and I think they, the only reason that they have even contemplated wanting to have a deterrent is the fear of uh, being attacked, being invaded again. Uh, but if they if they can get certain reassurances that that's not going to be uh, the, the main issue, then they, they don't really need to even worry about that. Mm. Um, I, I in general I, I agree uh, that the non-proliferation treaty by itself is enough. Uh, it does it's good enough for the, every other country in the world, uh, and the the only country uh, that has gone nuclear or has built nuclear weapons. Uh, after being a member of the NPT was North Korea, and they left before they tested their first weapon. And so the, the NPT works, uh, as you say, and the, the, the nuclear deal was, an uh, addition to that, uh, I guess to, to make extra sure that Iran's nuclear program really was in compliance, but they, but they've proven, uh, at least during the brief time when everyone was part of the agreement. Uh, that they're willing to comply with those terms, even though they are extra restrictions beyond what other countries have to put up with. And so they, they've proven that they're willing to do that. And I think we have to bank on that being the case again in the future. And that's that's where I hope we go, although we know, unfortunately, uh, if there's another Republican administration a few years from now, uh, they'll, they'll probably tear the whole thing up again and start over. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing of it, too, right? I was going to ask you here, is not the Ayatollah asking for some kind of real assurances? Or is he not saying, well, this has to be a treaty ratified by your Senate or else I just can't believe in it? Because you guys love breaking deals more than you like signing them. Uh, well, I, I don't know that they, they make a condition of it being ratified, but they, they do want some sort of binding commitment that says that a future administration won't go back on it. And it's, it's the, in the nature of our system that we don't really have the ability to, to bind later administrations in that way. Uh, unfortunately, even with a ratified treaty, as we know, if a president decides that a ratified treaty should be thrown out the window, 
there's remarkably little that anyone seems to be able to do about it. Yeah. Uh, Let me ask you something about that. You know, Jack Kennedy promised the Soviets we would not invade or do a regime change in Cuba and we get our missiles out of Turkey if they would back down and get their missiles out of Cuba in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And every president right. since then has stood by that. They could have invaded or done some kind of CIA coup or whatever it was. I'm pretty sure, aren't I right that all the exploding cigars and all the BS, that was all before the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the, the U.S. has essentially stood by that assurance this whole time, and even to the USSR that doesn't exist anymore, and obviously they still have their horrible, you know, Cuba policy with their blockade and the rest of it, but the embargo, as they call it. But um, somehow that one has stuck. I wonder if you could explain how do we get one of those, <laughs> you know, a, a security assurance that somehow is truly meant and that the other presidents do abide by. Well, I, yeah, I'm not sure because unfortunately there, there's such a, a strong anti-Iranian consensus in Washington that there's, there's a strong temptation for presidents of both parties to indulge that consensus and, and to, to pursue confrontational policies that, that don't really make any sense for U.S. security. Uh, and, and of course, we know that that has to do in part with lobbying by weapons manufacturers, lobbying by uh, UAE and Saudi-sponsored lobbying groups uh, that, that keep agitating for greater U.S. involvement and, and more lopsided U.S. involvement against Iran on their behalf. And so it's that that's the the core problem. I don't. I, I think we could find some sort of arrangement between our government and the Iranian government, provided that our government wasn't being pressured in so many ways by these other forces. And and how how you fix that? That I, I don't know. Well, Daniel, I just want to point out real quick, by the way, that you know the common narrative has it that Iran was at least researching how to make nuclear bombs up until 2003, as Seymour Hersh had reported, that they called all that off after America got rid of Saddam Hussein for them. Eh, convenient. But then, um, Gareth Porter showed in his book, Manufactured Crisis, that that assertion by U.S. intelligence was essentially based on two things. One, the Israeli-forged smoking laptop, or laptop of death, which was a hoax. And then secondly, as Gareth put it, honestly misinterpreted intercepts by the DIA where the Iranians were buying some dual-use items, some special magnets and whatever, that the DIA said, hey, this looks like maybe ingredients of a clandestine program here. But then the IAEA, years later, I guess, tracked all of these orders down in their investigations under the additional protocols and whatever and found all of these magnets and the rest of the material being used for civilian purposes at the university, just like in the original claims. So it wasn't cover for a secret program. It just sort of looked like that. And as Gareth Porter, he thought the DIA just made an honest mistake there. But then that was all there was. So in other words, they have this latent program where they do know how to enrich uranium. Can't argue with that. But they don't seem to have ever gone any further than that. The CIA, remember, had to frame them by handing them blueprints, the Operation Merlin, uh, to hand them blueprints with a couple of flaws so that the IAEA could catch them with the blueprints later. But, of course, the Iranians just tore it up and threw it in the trash and saw right through the ruse, and that didn't work. That was as close as they could get to saying Iran was had a nuclear weapons program, man. They had to frame them. 
Well, it's, it's always been really, uh, as you say, very thin evidence. It's, there's not a lot, uh, just to, to support the contention that they, they had much of a program then. Uh, and, and obviously even if you accepted all of that, uh, it has been not been the case for, for almost 20 years now. Uh, they, they've, they haven't been doing any of the things that people might suspect could lead to nuclear weapons. And so the, the, the question becomes then how is it when Iran has absolutely not been pursuing these weapons that so many political forces are determined to cast them as being hell bent on acquiring one when they, when they clearly aren't uh, hell bent on doing that, uh, that they're in fact been going out of their way to accept restrictions that other countries don't have to accept, uh, that keep them from that path. Uh, how, how many times do they have to say yes before people will actually accept that they are serious, uh, that they're not interested in that. And so that's, uh, that, that's the, the real political problem for us in the U.S. is that, that there's tremendous resistance from, uh, from that anti-Iranian consensus I was talking about uh, to accepting that you can, in fact, make a workable agreement with Iran and that they will stick to it. Um, the, as we've seen, that the real problem in any agreement between our countries uh, in practice is that our government can't be trusted to keep it. Uh, if, if we could find a way to, to keep our government on board with these agreements, uh, then they might actually last beyond three or four years. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I kind of resent the fact that America keeps fighting on both sides of this stupid sectarian war led by Riyadh and Tehran, you know, for the last 20 years here. So, but I guess, you know, if I worked at a think tank in Washington, I would think that, uh, that if you paid me enough or something, I would think that, geez, no, we can't leave because then all hell would break loose or whatever. Do you think that that is a reasonable possibility that if somehow America just stopped having a Middle East policy and just let them work it out, that necessarily Saudi Arabia and Iran would go to war against each other? Well, I, I doubt it very much. I mean, we, we've seen what Saudi Arabia's military capabilities are, uh, even against a much poorer and weaker country. Uh, going up against uh, a larger country with uh, a fairly sophisticated uh, set of military uh, capabilities, I think they would do very poorly indeed. Uh, but the, the the way that a lot of people think about this is is funny because we, we've been deeply engaged, deeply involved uh, militarily in the region for the last 30 years, and it's during those 30 years when the region has gone to hell. I mean, it's not, it's not that there haven't been wars prior to that. Uh, of course, there have been, but but typically, when there have been wars, they've either been wars that we have given the green light to, or that we have uh, accepted at some level. Uh, and in the last thirty years, a lot of the the chaos has been the result of our policies. So the the fear that the the region might become unstable if we were to withdraw or to pull back our forces uh, is, is is almost comical. Uh, Pulling our forces out may be one of the things that finally allows some stability uh, to to take hold, uh, because I think when we saw, and we, we even saw some of this uh, when the U.S. refused to respond to attacks on Saudi territory during the Trump administration, uh, there was this expectation that the U.S. would ride to their rescue, or that at least they had that expectation that the U.S. would ride to their rescue and, and attack Iran on their behalf. And when that didn't happen, 
they had to recalculate and they had to, to realize that they needed to mend their fences with the Iranians instead of taking a, an extremely hostile approach. And that's when some of these uh, talks between the Saudis and the Iranians first got started. And so I think what, what we would see is if we were to withdraw most or all of our forces out of the region and, and to let them uh, deal with each other with their own devices, uh, they would have to come to some kind of compromise. Uh, the, the Saudis can't afford a war on the scale that they would have to fight if they were actually to fight directly against the Iranians. And, and I don't think Iran is interested in starting a war like that. So the, the, the possibility for, for some kind of regional balance that is conducive to more peace and stability than we've seen over the last 30 years is, is a real possibility. And, and the idea that we're a stabilizing force when we're clearly enabling and egging on regional aggression uh, by the Saudis, by the UAE, by Israel, uh, as well as our own activities, uh, I, I think it's it's clear that we're not we're not the key to stability. We're we're the the obstacle to it. Yep, sure seems like it. I mean. They've all lived next to each other for thousands of years, and I know it's cliche to say, oh, they've been fighting for thousands of years, but I don't think that's really right, is it? They've been fighting this whole time? Well, no, certainly not on, on sectarian lines. The, a, a, lot of, a lot of modern sectarian conflicts are uh, just that very modern conflicts that stem from current political conditions. Uh, and and there, those sectarian divisions can be stoked and uh, and inflamed by certain governments for their own purposes, but the idea that, that these groups are going out of their way to to pick fights with each other simply over sectarian identity, uh, I think gets the 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 causality backwards. The sectarian identity becomes a way to mobilize people around conflicts that are already being fought for other reasons, right. and so that's. Uh, that's the the way I think people should think about it. Uh, and, and actually, Yemen is a, a great example of this because uh, sectarianism in Yemen has not been a particularly pervasive force uh, for much of its history. Uh, it's, it's only when the Saudis began actively exporting Wahhabism and, and, and pushing their line into Yemen uh, that you started to see a really uh, nasty uh, sectarian rift opening up. And so that's uh, that's where these things come from. They come from from government policies. It's not something that's it's not like an underlying fault line that just naturally creates these problems. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. There's no taking back 2003. Well, and I should say 2003 through eight, when Bush kicked all the Sunni Arabs out of Baghdad. That's the first time the Shiites have dominated a Arab capital city for a thousand years. And there's no one doing it. It took our Army and Marine Corps to make it this way. Hey, you're talking 10 million people moved out or something. I just forget about it. You can fling suicide bombers at Baghdad from now on, and it's going to be ruled by the Bada Brigade. So, you know, I don't know. I guess in that sense, maybe that leads more towards stasis. I don't know. <laughs> Probably doubtful, but it's something that, you know, the Iranians have their prize in their very close allies there. 
And the Saudis are just going to have to learn to suck it up because there's nothing they can do about that now, you know? And the, the Iranians, the, the Iranian interest in Iraq is primarily to ensure that nothing like what happened in the 80s happens to them again. And so they, they want to keep that that border, that their western border, secure. And so they will want to keep a friendly government in Baghdad. And so that that's what their interest is there. And uh, the, the, the current Iraqi government, uh, of course, uh, desires that the U.S. and Iran uh, bury the hatchet because Iraq has served as the battleground between the two of them uh, throughout the, the last two decades, uh, up, up until now. And so uh, if, if people want to see peace, or, or at least some more peace in Iraq than we've seen, uh, that, that relationship has to be put on a, a sounder footing instead of the, the constant uh, hostility and recriminations that have characterized it for, for these 40 years. Mm. All right. Well, listen, I sure appreciate your time on the show as always and all your great work for us at antiwar.com, Daniel. Thanks a lot, Scott. Thanks for having me on. All right, you guys, that is Daniel Larison, contributing editor at antiwar.com. His latest is Biden's last chance on the nuclear deal. Before that, stop indulging the Saudis and the UAE and on like that. Great stuff there. Uh, Original.antiwar.com slash Daniel underscore Larison. The Scott Horton Show, Antiwar Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.